We're going to be in Daniel chapter 12, so I invite you to turn there with me. If you have a Bible or if you need one, you can grab one in the back. It's good to see God's Word uh, with our own eyes as we read uh, a few verses from Daniel chapter 12, uh, the first four verses there. We have a number of uh, visitors, as I'm aware, uh, this Sunday. Uh, We've been in a, so just kind of a a quick little recap. We've been in a series through the book of Daniel, so here we come to the final chapter. And we've been, in the last couple sermons, been thinking about this final vision that Daniel receives in terms of the book of truth. Uh, Daniel is uh, read to from this book of truth, from this heavenly messenger uh, that comes to him from God. And this book of truth uh, contains within it the story of our world, the story of history and what is still to be as God has inscribed it. God who knows the the end from the beginning, God who has written the story of this world and of our lives has written it down in this book of truth that Daniel has been opening up. And now we've uh, thought about the content of that book in terms of this great conflict that takes place, the battle that has continued from age to age between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And here in Daniel chapter 12, that story that God has written comes to a surprising conclusion, a wonderful conclusion for the people of God. Though it comes up against a great enemy, a great foe, a greater conflict that has never been seen before, yet God reverses the circumstances for his people in the most wonderful and surprising way. And that ending is what we're going to be focusing on uh, today. Before we read, though, let's pray that God would open our eyes to uh, these truths and that we might be blessed by them. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things in your word, and Father, that we might then rest in knowing that you have authored the story of this world to bring glory to your name and to good to your people. Despite what our circumstances may say, we know that the story ends well for us, his people, your people. And we ask, Father, then, that as we reflect upon these words, we might see them in the light of Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, and one who is coming again for us, his people, that we might have hope. We pray this all in his name. Amen. So Daniel chapter 12, just the first four verses, and I'm hoping this is somewhat of a shorter sermon than we've had in the past, recently at least, um, knowing that we have the Lord's Supper as well, and um, also just want to be able to focus uh, pretty narrowly on uh, these verses that I think are so important for us. So Daniel chapter 12, the first four verses, this is the holy and inspired word of God. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So far from God's holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, with what kind of ever after will your life conclude with? With what kind of ever after will your life conclude in? Not many of us will have a biography written about us. Uh, many, few of us will. 
But all of us are part of a story. Our lives are a kind of story. And we all long, for, of course, for that happily ever after. One in what ends not in tragedy, but one that ends in glory. Uh, one that does not end in defeat, but in victory. One in which there is joy forevermore awaiting us in the beyond, in what is still to come. And yet, we ask the question, what kind of ever after will our lives conclude in? Because how can we be sure that our lives will end in a happily ever after? Um, How do we know that our lives are going to end in something that is good? In fact, Daniel holds before us two different ever afters. He holds before us everlasting life, which is good. But then he also holds before us the dreadful prospect of everlasting shame and condemnation. Two different, very different ever afters. So how can I be assured that my ever after and the ever after specifically of God's people will be one that is indeed happy? And it's these kind of stories, the ones that end in the happily ever after, are the ones that we are drawn to, uh, the ones that resonate within us because they reflect something of the true story of God's people, even as we see it reflected here as we come to the ending of the book of truth in Daniel, a surprising ending that does indeed end for God's people in a happily ever after. Uh, Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, had also written this famous essay in which he coined a term, eucatastrophe. You being a Greek prefix meaning good, and so it simply means a good catastrophe. This is, in, in a sense, the happily ever after. And he says this, he says, a good catastrophe, the joy of the happy ending, the sudden joyous turn, for there is no true end without, um, no, there is no true end. A turn means into something till to come. This joy, it does not deny the existence of sorrow and failure. It denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat, and insofar is good news, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. When the turn comes, it can give a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, near to, or indeed accompanied by tears. What he has in mind, right, it's a story in which it seems as if um, defeat is on the horizon. It's inevitable. It's, it's, it's immediate. But then immediately a turn takes place. Eagles swoop in to rescue God's people. Um, there's a great turning that takes place. And so too we find here in the book of Daniel. Notice what we read in Daniel chapter 12 verse, verse 1. It says, at that time shall arise Michael the great prince who has charged your people and there shall be a time of trouble since, since uh, such has never been since there was a nation till that time, right? So at the end of this story that God has authored, there is in- intense trouble. Now, the New Testament speaks of this time period as a great tribulation, a period in which a great figure, an antichrist figure, arises, deceives the church, and leads uh, and brings great chaos on the face of the earth. This is the story that God has authored. It is a time of great trouble. Jesus himself speaks about this time in Matthew chapter 24, just to read um, a couple of verses there. Matthew chapter 24, verse uh, 21. He says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. 
So Jesus, like Daniel, looks forward to a period of time in which there will be great trouble, great persecution, great tribulation for God's people, as if all hope has been lost, as if the cause of Christ has been defeated, as if the church has been extinguished. It's a period in which the church at times finds itself in, whether at times in which the church appears quite prosperous and glorious, other times the church on the face of the earth looks quite weak and small. Think of the church in the days of Elijah, when God preserved a mere 7,000 in the face of King Ahab and Jezebel, who reigned wickedly. At times, God's church is brought to the point of near extinction. And yet, even in those times, God's word gives us great hope. Because in the midst of the trouble, God protects us. God watches over us. God himself, his eye is always upon us. And the scriptures also remind us that God, though he could, of course, care for us and guard us and protect us in his own strength and his own power, yet the scriptures often speak of angelic beings whom God has set to guard his church, including here in Daniel 12, we get mention of the archangel Michael, right? At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charge of your people. Now, we get a mere glimpse into this spiritual realm that exists, that God has created, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the heavens being the unseen realm of angels and demons, one that's real and true, and yet one that we don't perceive with our eyes, yet God's word pulls back the curtain at times and lets us peer into it to see what is taking place. And we see there that Michael, this great angel of the Lord, has has um, charge over God's people to guard and keep them even in the midst of trouble. Michael's name means who is like God. He reflects something of the unparalleled, unmatched power of God that is at work on behalf of his people. He acts as a guardian of all God's people until the day of resurrection that is looked forward to here in Daniel 12. And so therefore the church, we ourselves, in the midst of a difficult situation, in the midst of a world that would otherwise seek to overthrow and destroy us, God has given charge of our safety and well-being to this mighty angel, Michael. Michael's mentioned throughout the scriptures. In Jude 9, for example, he is said to contend with Satan over the body of Moses. And you might say, well, why is he contending about the body of Moses? Well, again, Michael guards God's people until the resurrection, which made Moses' body significant. More could be said there, but just to get the general idea. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, Michael is mentioned as the great leader of the heavenly host who makes war on the dragon and his angels, and he battles on behalf of God's cause. It's a powerful angel that God has set over his people. The same reality is reflected in Psalm 91. Where it says in verse 9, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This was quoted against Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness, right? Satan uh, tempts him to throw himself down, that this prophecy... Um, And this promise would be fulfilled, but Jesus responds that you ought not to test the Lord. But God will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. We see uh, this realm uh, appear in Joshua, 
When Joshua leads the people of Israel into the land of Canaan and begins his campaign against the Canaanites to bring God's judgment upon the land, on the eve of battle, Joshua is confronted by this strange person. And this person says to Joshua, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Later in Israel's history, Elisha is in a city of Dotham being hunted down by the king of Syria. And the king of Syria sends his powerful army to capture Elijah. And Elijah's servant notices that the entire city is surrounded by horses and chariots. And yet Elijah is calm, cool, and collected. And he's wondering, do you see what I'm seeing? And Elijah's saying, well, are you seeing what I'm seeing? And, God, and Elijah prays that his servant, whose eyes would be opened. He says, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah, the angelic army of the Lord. Also, one more verse we're in, this, in this topic here is Matthew 18, verse 10. Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, this isn't warrant to have a whole theory of of um, guardian angels, but it does remind us that God protects us, right? The point of, the, of God revealing this in his word is not that we might worship angels or look to angels for help, but that we might more, all the more recognize that God guards us even in the midst of great trouble. In the midst of what would seem as if the church is to be extinguished and defeated, the cause of Christ done for, yet God preserves and keeps that they may not ultimately die out. And so this is the moment in the story, right, when, it, when all hope seems to be lost, and yet undergirding all of that, we can trust God and still have hope. And we're reminded then that the Christian life is not only one that's lived in faith, but also one that is lived by hope, right? We not only live in faith, but by and with hope. A hope that is often not seen with our eyes, but a hope that we derive from God's word and according to what he has told us. And though at this point in the story, which is still to come, a great period of tribulation that God's church will endure at the end, yet God will bring about a great and glorious eucatastrophe, a good catastrophe. He will turn the story to the good of God's people. Though the trouble is great, God indeed will deliver his people. Notice what it says in the middle of verse 1. But at that time, your people, and, and I'm always um, sensitive to the possessives in, in Scripture, your people. That's not something to simply slide over quickly or get to the next sentence, right? You belong to the Lord. Your people, the people of Daniel, the people of God, who belong to him at that time, your people shall be delivered. God will turn the story of God's people from their destruction ultimately to their good. God will deliver them and God will do it by his omnipotent power. And he will do it in such a way that all may know that it is he who has done it and no other. That he who has delivered his people, it's he who has rescued his people and no other. We become evident that he alone is the one who delivers his people, and specifically those whose names shall be found written 
in the book. Throughout Scripture, we find reference to this book in which God has written the names of his people. Your name, if you are in Christ and belong to him, is written down. He's aware of you. He knows you. He remembers his people. And in that book of life, God's, the, the future of God's people is secured. This book of life in which God's, the names of God's people are inscribed reminds us that our ultimate outcome in life is not dependent upon our present circumstances, but whether or not our name is written in that book. Do you see the point? It's not a matter of our circumstances that defines whether I'm living, whether I have life ahead of me, whether I'm, um, I'm destined for something good. What matters is whether or not my name is written in the book. In fact, often the appearance of life is contrary to the ultimate destiny to which a person is heading. Think of Psalm 73. We won't read there, but maybe this afternoon you can read Psalm 73. The psalmist almost loses heart because he sees the wicked prospering. On the appearance of things, it looks as if the wicked are living the good life. The wicked are the one who were destined for greatness. The wicked are the ones who have life ahead of them. As they are at ease and they prosper and they have um, um, well-stocked cabinets and so on, right? They're full. But then it says that he goes to the temple of God and discerns their end. Indeed, God has set them up in slippery places. And though they may appear to prosper now, God has them sliding toward destruction. And it is God's people then who are secure. That's why the psalmist then says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Words that we ought to have written on our own hearts and to know that what matters is being as our lives and our names being written in the book of life. It's they who in the end will be delivered. And how will God then deliver those who, whose names are written in his book of life? Verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. It is a picture one of the clearest pictures and maybe the clearest picture in the Old Testament of a coming resurrection, right? Those who have returned to the dust. Remember when God created man, right? From the dust of the earth, he formed man and breathed the breath of life into him. But in death, our bodies return to the dust. And yet God will raise those who have fallen asleep. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, not in their own strength, but by the sovereign power of God who raises the dead. They shall awake. Now, some have said, why does it say here many and not all? Will not all people rise in the end to be judged before Christ? And indeed, all people will rise in the end. Daniel's focus here is to speak specifically of those who were martyred and killed during the time of the end, during this great trouble of persecution. The great martyrs who even today before the throne of God cry out, how long, O Lord? Brothers and sisters who have lost their lives, they cry out, how long? Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Now, as we read earlier, at least last week, regarding the trouble that took place, you had those within the covenant community of God who were led astray. They apostatized. They left the faith, abandoned it because of the pressures that were put upon them. And therefore, while those, uh, there is a distinction that's made between those who awake to everlasting life and those who awake to everlasting contempt. 
Those who remained faithful, those who continued and held fast to their confession of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is they who in the end find this wonderful happily ever after in life everlasting. It's they who have held fast despite all circumstances, despite all opposition, despite all persecution, despite all consequences for holding fast confession of Jesus Christ without compromise. They in the end find a And ever after, that is indeed happy. But those who gave in, those who abandoned their faith, those who instead succumbed to the temptations and the deceits of the evil one, they are raised not to an ever after that is happy, but one that is dreadful in its prospect. These are the two final destinies in which all people are heading. Everlasting life, Everlasting contempt. Your life indeed will have an ever after. And the question before you is which one today will it be? Will it be one of happiness or one of dread? One of life or one of shame? And the good news that is proclaimed to us throughout the scriptures is that until that day, until the day of Christ's return when the dead are raised, and presented before his judgment seat, good news of the kingdom of Christ goes out. News of peace and of reconciliation. News that says that, yes, you may have walked in rebellion against me, but I will receive you again, and your name, too, will be written in the book of life. See, this good news goes out because it means that all who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who look to him and rest in him, as their Savior and their Lord, will find that their names are indeed written in the book of life. To belong to Jesus Christ is life everlasting. This is what Jesus begins to teach himself in John chapter 5, echoing these very words and this very prophecy of Daniel. He's reminding us that those who are raised to everlasting life are those who are united to him by faith, who belong to him because they have wholeheartedly trusted in him. In John chapter 5, Jesus uh, speaks of the resurrection, and he says in verse 25, well, let's go back to verse 24 so that it's clear to us. He says, truly, truly, right? This is Christ the Savior speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has everlasting life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life, right? The one who has trusted in Jesus has already in part experienced something of the resurrection, right? Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We already, though not bodily, but I've already participated in the resurrection of Christ. We have passed from death to life. We have new life in him. He goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The very two things Daniel speaks of here. 
And so the hinge, right, the difference between one who's ever after is happy and one who's ever after is dreadful is Jesus Christ and their relationship to him. To reject him is to go into darkness. To accept him in faith and to rest in him is to find life everlasting. And those who find life everlasting are are spoken of further in verse 3. It says those who are wise, right? Those who, who heed this word. Those who find life in Jesus Christ and hold fast to this word that has been revealed. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Throughout the, books, throughout the book of Daniel and its chapters, um, height is an important um, motif. Um, kings, like for example, King Nebuchadnezzar is compared to a great tree that has grown tall. And the glory of this world is often depicted in terms of its height. It stands over other things. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar himself at one point is on his, the palace rooftop and he looks down over Babylon and he says, look at this great Babylon that I have created for my glory, right? This is the glory of the world. But throughout the stories of Daniel as well, we see that those who have grown tall in their pride are cut down to size. God humbles those who exalt themselves, but he raises those from the dust of the earth who humble themselves before him. He demonstrates his control, that he is the true author of the story of the world. And he has written on the pages of the story of the world, a story in which the proud are humbled, the humble are exalted. Those who exalt themselves are cut down, while those who are humbled are raised up to resurrection life. It's what we see here, so that now beyond the treetops, beyond the clouds, So the very stars in the sky, those who are wise, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. The imagery here is meant uh, uh, for us to recognize that the glory that will be possessed by the people of God, the saints of the Most High, who come into his kingdom, will be a glory that far surpasses and stands far over even the greatest glory that has ever been obtained on the face of this earth. Nebuchadnezzar grew tall as a tree, but a star is indeed much higher, much farther, much more glorious than a treetop. It is we, the people of God, who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who will be raised to share in his resurrection glory. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory, the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 3. The Apostle John reminds us that we are children of God now, but who we are has not yet appeared. But we will be made like him when he does appear. It is Christ when he comes, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, who will raise our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. It is the glory of Christ raised from the dead, never to die again, that we come to share in. That we come not just to look at, but to come into, to share in, that we might possess in ourselves for all eternity the glory that Christ has won in his death and resurrection. The very glory that Jesus possesses today at the Father's right hand, he will give us to share in. The Heidelberg Catechism, which is um, a confessional statement of the Reformed churches, um, speaks of our sharing in Christ's um, anointing as prophets, priests, and kings. And we do so as Christ has given us his spirit. 
And as those who have the spirit of Christ, we are then to be kings, as the catechism tells us, who fight our sin, right? We put it to death today. But then it also says we will also, as kings who share in Christ's anointing, reign with him over all creation forever and ever. This is the glory that awaits us. But you'll also notice then that the glory that awaits us is a glory that belongs to those who have not sought their own glory, but have sought the glory and the good of others, right? We've said this in the past that throughout the book of Daniel, there's a contrast between the kingdom of God that his people, we belong to and the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of the world is filled with rulers and tyrants and people who aggrandize things to themselves. They bring things to themselves. They, they take and they use people for their own ends. But you'll notice throughout the scriptures and throughout the book of Daniel that the kingdom of heaven, the citizens of that kingdom, are defined by other being other-oriented, by looking to the good and the glory, not of themselves, but of others. That's why it says, those who turn many to righteousness shall shine like the stars forever and ever, right? There is an effect of our lives upon those around us, bringing others into the kingdom, and shining the gospel light that others may come and join into that light as well. And so that then calls us to be a people, an, an outward-looking people toward those in need, to draw people into the kingdom. And it also reminds us this glorious prospect that there is no sacrifice too great that Christ could call you to today that will not be far surpassed with glory in the world to come. There's no sacrifice today that Christ may call you to that is too great, that will not be satisfied with the glory that is to be revealed. The Apostle Paul tells us this in Romans 8, that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It is the glory of the resurrection. And therefore we can identify ourselves with a suffering people. Like Moses did long ago. One of the most staggering things I think in all of scripture. Moses was a prince of Egypt, right? He grew up in Pharaoh's house. And he had the pleasures and the glory and the power and the riches of Egypt before him on a platter, and he swipes it away. And he identifies himself instead with the Israelites, who at the time were an enslaved people under a tyranny of Pharaoh. Why reject the pleasures and the glory of Egypt for identifying yourself with suffering? Well, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What are you looking to? I think often we find our Christian life lived on a pretty low-level enduring some difficult things. But it's often because we're not looking to the reward. We're not looking to what is to come. 
we often have our eyes set upon things to come in this life, glory in this life, praise from other people in this life, power, position, influence in this life. That's often what we're looking for, aiming for. We live in a city that is, uh, is, is consumed with that, climbing the ladder, getting to the top. The penthouses, you can look up and see how many millions of dollars to own. The, right? That's what the world is looking to. And you understand why then they become so consumed with one another and fighting with one another and unconcerned with the well-being of one another. But the Christian, we here, ought to have our eyes looking not to those rewards, but to the reward that awaits us in the resurrection, the glory that is ours in Jesus Christ. And when our eyes are set there, when we're looking there, then we too, like Moses, can reject the fleeting pleasures of sin, the, 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 what is given to us in this life for the greater wealth that belongs to Christ. Like Daniel, who had the kingdom uh, offered to him in Daniel chapter 6, could reject it in, in faithfulness to his God because he was looking to a greater kingdom and to a greater glory. And this message then, Daniel is told, as it says in verse 4, to shut up the words and seal the book, not to keep it secret, but that it might be preserved. That God's people might read that word, even as we have come to read that word today, to profit from it, to benefit from this word, until the time of the end. We have not yet come to that day. And until that day, Daniel's word remains relevant and important for us to see and to heed and to believe. And so we've seen then this wonderful catastrophe. We've seen how God takes a situation in the story that he has written of this world in which his church seems overwhelmed and defeated. And in the end, when Christ comes again, he reverses the fortunes. He brings his people into life everlasting. And this means then today, before that time, we then are a people who live not only by faith, but also in hope. And I want to just uh, conclude with a quote from uh, J. Gresham Machen's Christianity and Liberalism. If you want to join our book club um, reading uh, beginning in October on Sundays, uh, see me afterwards. Uh, but Machen had written this in Christianity and Liberalism. He said, The Christian life is lived not only by faith, it is also lived in hope. The Christian is in the midst of a sore battle. Nothing but the coldest heartlessness could be satisfied with the condition of the world at large. It is certainly true that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. Even in the Christian life, there are things that we would like to see removed. There are fears within as well as fights without. And within the Christian life, there are sad evidences of sin. But according to the hope which Christ has given us, there will be a final victory. The struggle of this world will be followed by the glories of heaven. This hope runs all through the Christian life. Christianity is not engrossed by this transitory world. It measures all things by the thought of eternity. Are you measuring all things by the thought of eternity? That's where Daniel raises our minds to life everlasting. That's where the Apostle Paul raises them. It's where Christ has raised them in his ascension and his promise to come again. Set your minds on him. Seek the reward that comes from him and the glory that is yours in him alone. And he will bring you into it, into its fullness when he comes again. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you that this word um, has been recorded for us and written down, that we might know the story that you have written for this world of which we are a part. Father, may we then 
as we hear this word, may we be people who then not only trust that word, but then find great hope in that word as well, that we might walk by faith and in hope for the coming of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will raise us from the dead and usher us into life everlasting. We pray, Father, until that day that knowledge would increase as your word goes forth, that uh, those who are outside of the kingdom today on their way to destruction will be brought into that kingdom in Jesus Christ, that through him they might be reconciled to you and also find a true happily ever after. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.